everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right. <clears throat> One quick order of business uh, before we get into today's message. Um, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we had our second floats and finances meeting, and I would ask this. If you're somebody who calls Discovery home, if you weren't able to be a part of that, I would love to invite you. If you could go back and watch that, just so you know the inner workings of what's going on here at the church, that would be amazing. One of the things that came out of that time was just a very clear and simple ask uh, financially for where we're at as a church. We have a gap financially that we're trying to cover to get us through these next 18 months, and we think there's some indicators that in 18 months we're going to be in a more sustainable place, but we're not there today. So to get there, we thought we could either just readjust our budget, which at this point means personnel, or we could make an appeal and say, hey, if we can hold the course where we are right now, man, it's going to propel our church further in where we're going. If that's something that you and your family would consider doing, uh, there's about 385 people who give to Discovery on a regular basis. If each of those folks gave a gift of about $485, we would be there. If you would consider doing that one time, that would be amazing. Uh, if that's something you want to do, one other thing, the QR codes that are on the back of your chair, um, if that's something you're like, we can do that, we just can't do that now, there's a way that you can pledge to give at some point in these next several months. Uh, also, I've heard from many of you that you're like, yeah, we did that, we're in, we're excited. We, with the way our church accounting software works, don't have a great way to dog ear stuff like that. So if you're like, we gave or we're going to give, if you could still use that QR code and let us know, or you can just come find me after church, or if you're going to write a physical check, you can just put it in the memo. Uh, but that this is for the runway campaign. That's what we're calling this. Uh, but that way we can just know on our end what money is being pledged uniquely to this and what's just going to general operating. So that's where we're at. Um, and then one disclaimer before I get too knee-deep into today's message. This sermon today is not being taught by a master on this subject. I'm on a journey with this stuff too. And I, I hope that there's a great invitation in that, that I think following Jesus is pilgrimage. Um, this one all week this week has just been messing with me, I think in a really good way. But I, I, would, I just want you to know, I don't have this nailed and I'm speaking a little bit as a hypocrite because this is not something I feel like I practice perfectly, but I know that it's right and it's good. So as we get in, um, we're talking a lot about the idea of touch today, touch and no touch, swipe or no swipey, touch or no touchy, all of those things. And as I was thinking about this, there was a study that came to mind uh, that I've learned about before, and it just comes up all the time. It's one of those studies that troubles me every time I hear it. And uh, this is an article written by um, the, Association, uh, the American Psychology Association, the APA, and they say this in this article. In 1989, Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu was overthrown, and the world discovered for the first time that 170,000 children were being raised in Romania's impoverished institutions. The babies laid in cribs all day, except when they were being fed, diapered, or bathed on a very set schedule. They weren't rocked. They weren't sung to. There wasn't time for that. 
As the children's plight became public, a team of researchers realized they had a unique opportunity to study the effects of early institutionalization. They launched their project and began by assessing 136 children who had been living in Bucharest institutions since birth. Then they randomly assigned half of the children to move into Romanian foster families whom the researchers recruited and assisted financially. The other half remained in care as usual. The children ranged in ages from six months to three years with an average age of 22 months old. The first time Nathan Fox, a psychologist and researcher, stepped into a Romanian orphanage, he was struck by the silence. He said the most remarkable thing about the infant room was how quiet it was, probably because the infants had learned that their cries were not responded to. Many stared, many of the babies were staring at their own hands, trying to derive whatever stimulation they could from the world around them. Basically, these kids were left on their own, he said. Over the subsequent months and years, the researchers returned to assess the development of the children in both settings. They also evaluated a controlled group of children who had never lived in an institution. They found many profound problems among the children who had been born into neglect. Institutionalized children had delays in cognitive function, motor development, and language. They showed deficits in socio-emotional behaviors and experienced more psychiatric disorders. They also showed changes in the patterns of electrical activity in their brains as measured by an EEG. For kids who were moved into foster care, the picture was brighter. The children showed improvements in language, IQ, and social-emotional functioning. They were able to form secure attachment relationships with their caregivers and made dramatic gains in their ability to express emotions. While foster care produced notable improvements, though, children in foster homes still lagged behind the control group of children who had never been institutionalized. And some foster children fared better than others. Those removed from the institutions before the age of two made the biggest gains. There's a bit of plasticity in the human brain, Fox says, but to reverse the effects of neglect, he add, the earlier the better. Wow. If you've never heard this study before, it's troubling. Troubling to consider when a baby is not held and rocked and sung to. When they cry and they're not fed or their diaper's not checked, not on a systematic schedule, but on a baby's bodily schedule, at some point they just stop. And the silence that can happen in a room full of infants, gosh, I bet that was eerie. And to see 20-month-old kids and six-month-old kids staring at their own hands because that's the only thing that's moving in front of their eyes. How wild is that? And as we continue in, in our study of psychology and of humanity, the importance of human touch, the importance of presence, the, the importance of attunement, we're finding more and more that's not just a nice thing. That is hardwired into how we are designed as human beings. We were meant for relationship and interaction. And not just on a general relational level, but a relational level that demands interaction. It's amazing. And the stories that we're going to be talking about today, we've just come out of the Sermon on the Mount for the last several weeks, and, and now we're, we're going to get a little bit more of a picture. And I want to highlight for you, there are 12 stories that Matthew, as an author, is going to go, okay, Sermon on the Mount, teaching, 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 heavy, heavy teaching. Now I'm going to come at you full blast with 12 stories of Jesus interacting with people. And each story, it's so interesting to look at. Six of these 12 stories, Matthew is so careful to make sure that you know, and Jesus reached out and he touched the person. 
In six of the stories, Matthew seems pretty careful to say he didn't touch the person. He, he, and, and we're going to find out why that's a big deal. But as Jesus comes down the mountain, he's got this crowd of people that are following him. We'll read this in just a moment. But the first person that he comes to is going to be a leper. And we're going to talk about that. The next person that he comes to is a Gentile. And the third person that he comes to is a woman. Now, I want to highlight that before we get into the text today because those are three really important characters for us to understand some basic things about. A leper, not supposed to mess with them, not supposed to touch them, talk with them, be around them, period. Jesus is saying, hey, there's some barriers in the world. First off, there's some physical barriers. I'm just going to lean right into these. And then the next person is it's a Roman centurion. This is one of the bad guys. Like, if there's a villain in the story walking around, it's him. And Jesus had just finished saying some things about enemies. And he comes into this racial barrier. And he says, I'm just going to step right into this. And the third person that he comes to is a woman. And there were plenty of gender barriers that were happening in Jesus' time. And the third person, in order, this is so neat, that Matthew wants to make sure that you understood the order. And, he goes, and, and then the gender barriers. Jesus just said, I'm just going to step right in to this. It's so incredible. The way that a rabbi teaches is first they're going to tell you something. They're going to give you the lesson. But un, unlike schools today, unless you get to go on a field trip, and we've talked about this before, usually the lesson is just a taught thing. We talked about it. I might have given you some homework, but that's what it is. If you're with a rabbi teacher, they're going to give you the message, say, in a sermon on the side of a mountainside. But then the very next thing that they're going to do is grab you and all of the other students by the hand and go, okay, now let's, let me go show you what this actually looks like. Let's go live it out in the actual real world around us. What does the Sermon on the Mount mean? One of the things I would highlight right away is it means looking at what barriers are in the world that are preventing people from understanding that they are children of God and stepping into those. So what happens in this story? Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to start, we're really just going to camp out in the first 13 verses. That's as far as we're going to get this morning. And we're going to focus on just two of these healing stories. One that's a touchy story, one that's a no touchy story. And I want you just to pay attention at first blush as we read through this, what sticks out at you about these couple characters that Jesus interacts with. It says this, Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came, and he knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand, and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed. He's suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, Shall I come heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. 
I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Did anything immediately jump out to you or needle at you in, their, in these stories? There's, there's these moments where he's interacting with the leper right at the end. He, he acknowledges, hey, there's some things you have to do as a Jewish person. Honor the law of Moses. And then he's talking to the centurion right at the end. He has these lines about, man, I, in all of Israel, in the people who have been God's children for so long, uniquely, they're not even understanding it at the level that you're understanding it. These, these like sub-stories that are undergirding these incredible healings. What's going on? So, this first story. Let's just camp out on the leper for just a second. Jesus has just, for Matthew, done this incredible sermon. It's been three chapters long, and as a rabbi, he's now going to take, we find out not just the 12 disciples, and we don't even have 12 disciples at this point. All we know for sure is that there's four, but he's grabbing these four guys, and then this whole crowd of people is also following him. He's going, hey, let me now come show you what this looks like. And before they even get to the bottom of the hill, you can tell from a distance, from the shouts. It's just the shout of one person, but the words, unclean, 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 unclean. Because if you're a leper in this day, everywhere you went, you had to shout that word to let everybody around you know you don't want to touch me or get too close. Leprosy, we've learned a lot about it since Jesus' day, but at the time, it was this idea that it was transmissible by touch. It was a gnarly disease. If you don't know anything about leprosy, the basics are this. It eats away at the end of your nerves. And so then, if you end up uh, losing some of that feeling, say, in your fingertips or in your hands or in your lower arm, you can't tell when you've been cut by something. And the pain receptors that your brain needs to say, go to the doctor, they're just not firing when that gets infected. And over time, that skin just becomes necrotic and it falls off or needs to be amputated. So oftentimes, the lepers that are walking around saying unclean, if they're begging with their outstretched hands, many of their fingers are not on those hands. They almost always had to have their face covered, partly because of the breathing issue. We're we're not unfamiliar with face masks. And because oftentimes, places that would end up getting infected and falling off are places where you get acne. Their, their nose would just be gone. Their cheeks would be filled with holes. Their, f- their face would just be mangled. Unclean. 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 And as Jesus, with this crowd in tow, gets to the bottom of the mountain, you can hear the collective as this leper takes a step towards Jesus and then falls on his knees. He's engaging him. And the gasp is a quick look back to Jesus to say, What's going to happen now? If Jesus is a good rabbi, he's going to do a couple things. One, if he's a typical rabbi, he might talk to him, but he's going to keep his distance and avoid everything about this leper. There were laws. You can go, if you're in a life group, one of the questions you're going to get this week is go back around into Leviticus chapter 14 and read about what the law was about leprosy. There were laws about this. It's what Jesus talks about at the end. But it's not that you weren't allowed to touch somebody with leprosy. It's just that if you touched somebody with leprosy, you were now unclean. 
So this leper falls at Jesus' feet. He calls him Lord. He says, if, you can, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the first words back out of Jesus' mouth follow the first thing that Jesus does. Let me read this series of events again. Verse two, a man with leprosy came and he knelt before him and he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He touches him first. He doesn't say a word. And I imagine in that one action, what was said was volumes. And then he opens his mouth. I am willing. I think there are times in my life where I struggle of knowing, does God care? Like, would he choose me? Would he choose the situations around me? And I love in this moment, it's just this distilled moment of seeing like his goodwill towards me. Oh, it, it's like silent, it's so obvious. It's, of course, at risk of making him unclean. Yes, oh, it's, it's astonishing. I am willing. I don't know what it is in your life, but some of you need to know today the phrase, do you care? Would you be willing to do anything about this? I think you have a God who, without a word, is taking a step forward. Saying, I care an awful lot. Jesus now has to spend six days not going into a synagogue because he's unclean. Now, I think for us, just real briefly, there's so much more that we could say on this, but being unclean doesn't mean sinful. It just means you're not clean. Jesus willingly made himself unclean to be with somebody who needed to be healed. Man, if you're somebody who calls yourself a follower of Jesus, is this an action that you find yourself willing to take? I will enter into dirty spaces or hard conversations because it's not the sickness that's the problem. And this is what Jesus had been addressing in the Sermon on the Mount with the whole Old Testament. It's not about the dang law. Don't worry about the words of the law. The law is for a greater, the law is for people. Can you see people in it? Man, and Jesus keeps this Old Testament law fully alive with this Jewish leper. Go, follow the steps of Leviticus 14. Take a sacrifice, go see the priest. Let the priest not just say, okay, I guess you're all right. Let the priest reintroduce you into the family of the children of Israel. One final thing I'll say about this leper. He didn't have a shot. He was not just physically sick, but socially he'd been kicked out of his family. If he had kids, which he may or may not, he hadn't been allowed to, to be around him, to hug him. If he had a mom and a dad, same thing. He hadn't been allowed to go to church. He hadn't been allowed to really work a consistent job. He had no future. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, go back, we're gonna do this officially. Go see a priest, make the sacrifice. You'll be reintroduced as a full-fledged member into the children of Israel. Welcome home, kiddo. Oh, I love it. The Old Testament to Jesus is incredibly important. 
and I don't want any of us to miss. It, it can become so common sometimes for followers of Jesus today to go, ah, it's the Old Testament, don't worry about it. Absolutely not. That is the story of God, and Jesus is tying it throughout, saying this is important. Okay, so this is a story of Jesus restoring a member of the family of Israel back to Israel, but he's restoring Jesus on a bigger level, the children of God back into the family of God. There's the small but complete window of the entire gospel that we're gonna see as we step into this next story. So where Jesus was, the Sermon on the Mount, the city that's right at the bottom of this hill is a city called Capernaum, just so happens that's where Jesus had already moved his base of operations. So Jesus is just going back home. And as soon as he gets back into Capernaum, as he enters the city, he doesn't even get home yet. I mean, he just did a three-chapter sermon that was like a doctoral thesis. The dude's tired. And as he enters the city, there's a Roman centurion that's waiting for him. Now, if there was a gasp in the crowd when we saw this leper, yet again, there is a gasp in the crowd as this Roman centurion is waiting there. Again, these are the bad guys. These, these are the guys who could just demand, carry my backpack for the next mile because I said so. They could demand taxes, money. They, I mean, they, they just, they were the invading, occupying force. This man is waiting for him, and he, and he starts asking for help, which would confound you. You don't ask if you're a Roman soldier talking to a Jew. If you're a Roman centurion, you don't talk to a Jew. Roman centurion, they were over at least 100 soldiers. This guy had power and authority, which is a huge word for us to hang on to for these next several chapters in Matthew. But there's an audible gasp again in the crowd. What's Jesus going to do? Can you hear, as a rabbi, Jesus pulling together so many of the things that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount between this leper and the centurion. Let them see your good works. I've come to fulfill the law. Let your yes be yes. Don't make a big deal when you do something big or when you pray. Be humble. Ask for God's help. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Put into action God's words. And here I think the crowd would be remembering, oh yeah, just an hour ago he said something about Love your enemies? And I think Jesus as a rabbi is going, oh, I'm just going to step right into this. Can you hear that gasp? A centurion has a sick servant. So if you're Jewish, there's a lot that's frustrating you here in this story. First, the fact that he would have the audacity to talk to this rabbi, but it, it's not just that Jesus, you're, you're frustrated with Jesus if you're Jewish because it's not just that he's willing to talk to this centurion who's, who's just seen as scum, but we're talking about healing a servant underneath that soldier. So we're two levels removed of people that Jesus should be interacting with. That would drive you nuts. And it's amazing the conversation that they have because the centurion keeps bringing up this word authority. As a commander of a hundred soldiers, he knows how authority works. He knows that, yeah, when we're at war, there's a base camp and I'm hanging out there. I've got my map of the region. I have my little plastic toy army guys and we're moving them all around on the map and I'm making decisions, but from a distance 
Because when I send an order as I'm looking at my map, we're going to move half of our army around this way on a flanking mission. He doesn't actually go running out of his tent to join on. That's just how it works. He's a centurion. He understands authority. If you have command over a situation or over anything or anyone, you don't have to be there in order for things to get done if you have authority. And I think this soldier working totally as a, I mean, this is as a dude, like just, he's a soldier thinking like a soldier. This is just how it makes sense to him. He approaches Jesus and Jesus says, yeah, I'll come to your house. Okay, that would have totally ticked off the Jewish people. Because if you're Jewish, you can't just go waltzing into the house of somebody who's not Jewish. There's so many issues there. So verse seven ticks off the Jewish people. Verse eight ticks off the Roman people because the soldier says, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. What are you talking about? You can just command him to do that. The honor and the respect that are coming out of this guy are uncommon. So, as the story continues, he says, look, I understand how authority works. I think if there were more words that we would get in the story here, we would have Matthew letting us know. He, this, this soldier understood Jesus' authority to be over everything. He's saying, look, you don't, you don't even have to come to my house. I don't think he's saying that understanding the Jewish system of, of purity laws and knowing like, oh, as a Jewish person, you're not supposed to come to my house. He probably knows that. But I think the reason why he's saying that is because as a soldier, he's saying, I understand how all this works. You don't need to come to my house. You can just stay in your, your command center of operations. Will you just send a runner and we can move the chess pieces on the board and we can get this done? And Jesus is like blown away by this guy. He makes this statement, nowhere in all of Israel, with all the children of Israel, all these Jewish people, nobody gets it like this. And the story continues and the servant gets healed. So what do we do with these two stories? I, I, I think to hold them up side by side, one thing that stuck with me this week was why is Jesus so amazed at the centurion, but he's, he doesn't say that he's amazed with the leper. It doesn't mean the leper's like not as good of a story or anything like that, but it's pronounced when you, when you read it in the Greek, when you just look at it as a story, Jesus is amazed by the centurion. Why? And if you put the stories up side by side, they really don't look that different. Check this out. The leper, he kneels. The centurion comes up and says, I'm not worthy. Both of them, super humble posture. They both use the same word, Lord. Wow. If you're a Roman centurion calling somebody else Lord, you're like potentially in hot water because there's only one Lord in the Roman Empire, and that's Caesar. Wow. So maybe it's there, but they both use the same title. If you choose, only speak the word. There's a sense of this is all about you, which just as a quick fun sideline, that's the gospel. There's no sense in either one of these guys of the leper saying, here's all the things I've been trying to do as I've been shoved to the outskirts. I've been taking care of other people. And the Roman soldier is not doing all this back, back bending work to say, let me justify why I deserve this. Both of them say, look, this is completely up to you. And I think as a posture of somebody who's in the presence of Jesus, if this is an interaction that you get to have, and I think for all of us, the door is so wide open. You don't have to justify who you are 
or what you've done or how worthy you are. Every time there's an interaction with Jesus, it's all about him and what he does and chooses to do. But they're the same. The leper says, make me me clean. The centurion says, can you heal my servant? I choose, let it be done. These are very similar. He touches the leper, amazing. He just speaks about the servant. There's a huge difference in these two stories. And then it finishes the same, immediately and immediately. It happens right away. So I I think for me, dialing in on this of going, why is he so amazed at the centurion? That's the detail that I continue to circle back on. Touching is one thing. Doing like a Steph Curry from Beyond the Ark telehealth call, that's something completely different. And that's what Jesus is doing here. This guy, as now we're going to dive just a tiny bit deeper with our remaining time, becomes a life goal. And to be clear, this does not mean that who the leper is and what the leper does and asks how he behaves is not a life goal. What incredible faith that he had. But if Jesus is amazed at the centurion, I want to look at what's going on there. There's a small point with him that we just made. He doesn't try and justify himself, but there's a bigger point that I think really makes these two stories stand out. He understands Jesus' rank. He understands Jesus' sphere of influence. He recognizes something that is much more important. Jesus does not have to be physically present with you to have an influence on you and the world around you. Now, if you can just step back for one moment, because we've been all in the story, but we have to remember, this is a story that's being written down by Matthew. And Matthew is writing this story well after Jesus has ascended to heaven. And who he's writing it to is a group of people who most likely pray these weird prayers that none of us pray today, like, Jesus, I wish you would just audibly talk back to me. I wish you would just physically enter us. None of us have ever prayed prayers like that, right? I find myself praying prayers like that often. And those are the prayers of the leper. Will you touch me? Will you you just, will you interact right here, right now? And, And I need to hear it. I need to feel it. Those are good prayers and those are welcome today. But I think Matthew is looking at his audience too going, he may not be physically present right now and he may not have an audible word that you're going to hear in your ears. You know what amazing faith is? You know what blew Jesus' mind and you know what we're called to if we're looking at life goals? We're called to know Jesus' rank. We're called to know that he has authority over everything and everyone and everywhere all the time. That's what faith looks like. And so Jesus is experiencing the centurion and for the first time, he's going, man, I've, in, so far in Matthew, he's done all these healings, all these things where he's personally interacting with people. But for the first time, he's finding somebody that goes, even if you're not here, you can do stuff. And I'm called out because I'm a pilgrim on a journey. And I hear that story and I go, that is amazing. I want to believe like that. And sometimes I do. But man, there's times that I don't. This Jesus is so complex. It's always Jesus' will that is being done. 
And if you're a skeptic, because there's been times where you have found yourself crying into the night, saying, will you just, can I hear your voice? Can you just interact personally with this conversation real quick? I think the final underlying point I would make is that Jesus is always accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish. And sometimes it can drive skepticism to say, but you didn't do it how I wanted. And I think you would find a Jesus with tears in his eyes, looking back with you with total compassion, saying, no, but I'm doing it how I want to do it, and I need you to trust me that this is best. I'm gonna bring out the band. But if you're looking for something to propel you a little bit deeper into this kind of an understanding and lifestyle and faith in Jesus, one of the best books I've ever run across is old. It's a book called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. It's a short read uh, in page length. It'll take you about eight decades to understand what the heck he was talking about. But Jesus is not just restoring the children of Israel. He's not just here for the Jewish people. And I hope, I mean, there's a lot of non-Jewish people in this room right now. I hope this is good news to you. He came for you, too. You matter to him. And even if he's not here, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a handle on the situation. It doesn't mean that he's so far removed that you just shrug your shoulders and give up hope. It doesn't mean that you stop crying. You start to look at your own hands as the only stimulus that's around. Jesus is perfectly present. He's attending to you in every moment of every day. He cannot be more perfectly in your presence and you cannot be more perfectly in his presence than you are right now. And not because it's a Sunday morning and you're at church. It's because he is unchanging and unchangeable. And if you're a kid who's maybe feeling like in my story, I've struggled with a lot of spiritual neglect. I think the the hope of both of these stories today, I want to just underline one final time. The prayer of Jesus, I just need to hear audible voice. I need you to touch this situation is good. It's a good prayer. And the prayer that must undergird everything is the prayer of faith that amazes Jesus. Even if you don't interact how I want you to. Even if I can't hear you, even if I can't feel your touch, I know you're right there. I know you hear every cry. I know you care deeply. I know you'll change my diaper when I need to change diaper. You've got me, and I trust you. That's the gift of this Roman centurion. And it's the gift of this leper. And I would invite you now as we stand to sing, to sit or stand in the presence of a God who's perfectly with you right now. Enjoy how attuned he is to you. Let's stand and sing.